my name is Maria. My pronouns are also she and her. Welcome to LGBT Cliff Notes. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the ways humans speak and communicate and the way that those things are influenced by gender. Uh, um, fun. The idea for this episode came from someone on our show Discord. Mm-hmm. Discord, it's great. You should join it. Mm-hmm. Um, they suggested a chapter in a book, specifically how women and men differ when using signed languages like ASL, uh, American Sign Language. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to clarify, because it might be a little confusing, when people think of language and gender, sometimes they think about gendered language. Um, and this this episode is actually about language use, not gendered language. So. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean, I'll be talking about how language is used differently by different genders, like women using certain words more than men and vice versa, Um, whereas gendered language refers to gender biases when speaking, like the words businessman or waitress or phrases that use masculine pronouns when referring to a general case, like uh, if you say... A doctor must listen to his patients, uh, which sort of implies that all doctors are men. So mm. that's gendered language. Maybe someday we'll have an episode on that. But today <laughs> it's it's not about that. <laughs> OK, so first, let me tell you about the signed language study that got this whole thing going. So um, uh, the researcher in this book, um, and it's cited in the show notes, Uh, starts by pointing out that people in ASL interpreter programs often comment that women and men sign differently, um, which I thought was really interesting. I, I mean, I guess I know that women and men gesture differently and, uh, so sure, but I'm surprised in like a more formalized, rigorous language, like a signed language, that there's still differences. Um, so she says that the the students that are in these interpreter programs are often not able to point out exactly why, but they claim that women signers are easier to understand. Hmm. So her particular study um, focuses on finger spelling, which is the use of a signed alphabet to spell a word. Um, it's often used to spell a proper noun, like a name, uh, but it's also used for other nouns and verbs that like don't have a, an equivalent sign or the person doesn't know what the sign is. Mm. Um, so fingerspelling, I know, I don't know if this is a weird thing. I don't know if this is a universal experience, but was, when I was a kid, I was really excited about sign language and learned how to spell my name. So if you know how to spell your name in sign language, that's that's what fingerspelling is. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, useful skill. Very useful skill to have, regardless of whether or not I mean, you can hear. <laughs> I think... I actually have a lot of opinions about signed languages, and I don't understand. I I wish that we were, as a society, more bilingual with Mm. at least, you know, basic signed languages, because there's so many instances where it would be very useful to be able to communicate in a silent way. Oh, yeah. Um, I would I would love to know sign language and be around other people that know sign Mm. language. I I know a little bit, and I used to... Where I last worked, uh, a good deal of the people um, I worked with actually knew a lot more ASL than I did. Um, mostly we oh, would wow. just use it to say like, you know, dumb things from across the floor to one <laughs> another without getting on the radio. Stuff like, you know, I'm so tired, I want to die. Uh, stuff like that. Nice. 
I need coffee. Yeah. Very I, useful phrases, you see. I mean, they are. I don't I, mm -hmm. I once took a uh, a sign language class that was actually taught by a deaf woman and it was amazing. It oh, was yeah. so 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 cool. Um yeah, but when it I mean it is like any language when you stop using it or if you don't have someone to practice with, oh, yes. you kind of lose it. So I, I know a few things and my name. Mm -hmm. That's about <laughs> anyway, where I'm at, too. Um, so this study, um, the initial, I, I initial, the initial hypothesis is interesting because um, it's based on a similarity that um, the author read in in like spoken language. So in many English speaking countries, women are more likely to use the formal form of a word than the casual form of a word. Um, and this holds true across all social classes. So, uh, for example, women are more likely to say that they're going to the store, while men are more likely to drop the G and say they're going to going to the store. Mm. <laughs> Um, and that's, I mean, that's one example. There's, you know, lots of casual language, but, um, usually women will use the more formal mm -hmm. of the term. So for signed languages, the researcher hypothesized that men were doing something similar with finger spelling. They were using less precise gestures instead of like the exact orientation that would be seen in a textbook. So she did the study, um, <laughs> and it turned out that she was correct. Um, women use this textbook fingerspelling orientation about 60% of the time, while men use it about 40% of the time. Hmm. Um, and she was also surprised to find that the particular kind of word also has an effect on how precise people try to be. So... Um, when people are fingerspelling a proper noun, like a, a name, they're more likely to be more careful with the orientation, while nouns and verbs are often more casually fingerspelled. Hmm. I mean, that I guess so, that makes sense. Yeah, because you want, you know, a proper name could be is is not necessarily in context, whereas if you're using a noun or a verb, it's it's like in a context and yeah. might be easier to figure out. Is is that true in in? Is like across the entire study group or is that is that another gender drift difference um what do you if, mean? if you know oh oh um no so it's true across the entire study group mm -hmm. um but i think so so the uh women using precise orientation 60 percent of the time and men using it about 40 percent encompasses mm. all of those categories Gotcha. And then, yeah, when you split it up, yeah, I don't, I don't know the exact breakdown. <laughs> okay. But they, they both are more careful with proper nouns. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So, um, let's move on. Um, I did try to find some more stuff about, uh, gender and signed languages because I wanted to do. I, I thought I was going to do a whole episode on it, um, but that didn't work out. So um, for most of the episode, I'm going to talk about uh, general gender differences when people are using English speaking, uh, e English speaking languages. No, when people are speaking English, there we go, when people are speaking English. Um, and then at the end, I have a bit about a really interesting story 
story, a really interesting study on um, trans men and gay men and vocalizations and acoustic properties and all of that. Um, But most of this episode is about uh, just cis men, cis women. Um, That's what it is. Mm -hmm. So the studies I reference in the first part of this episode come from a book by Jennifer Coates called Women, Men and Language. Uh, The most recent edition was updated in 2003, so it doesn't have the most recent studies, but I do think it's a great book on the early foundational studies of gender and language in English speaking regions. Mm. Um, God, I it was it was really accessible and really Mm. well written. I I really liked it. It was a good book. If you listen to this and want to learn more things, I I highly recommend it. Okay, Mm. so. The first topic uh, I'm going to discuss is about gender differences in word and phrase choice. So reading about all of these studies and, and just thinking about them made me think about how easy it is to take a single fact and interpret it in radically different ways. So before we get into actual studies, I'm going to give you an example. Um, Take this set of facts. People were recorded buying train tickets from an attendant, 100 men and 100 women. The women asked a total of 60 questions. The men asked a total of 20 questions. So what conclusions can you draw from this? I mean, go ahead. I'm going to pause for six whole seconds because I do really want you to think about it. One interpretation is that men know what they're doing and are more knowledgeable about train schedules, so they don't need to ask questions as much as women. Another interpretation is that women are simply more comfortable asking for information while men would rather get on the wrong train than admit they don't know something. (laughs) The idea is there are plenty of ways to think about the given facts, Mm -hmm. but I have a tendency to wonder about the extra variables that aren't being accounted for, especially when we look at gendered studies like this. And so I'm going to encourage you to do the same thing um, Mm -hmm. and give some examples. So was the attendant a pretty woman? So men didn't want to look dumb in front of her, but women didn't mind. Mm -hmm. Were the men and women all tourists or regular commuters or a Mm -hmm. mix? Was the recording done all the same day? Were the questions about the schedule or a train route or just asking about how the attendant is doing? Hmm. Um, it's it's pretty evident that for this area of research, um, that the people designing and analyzing these studies will come to different conclusions based on their biases. Not only are they going to interpret facts differently, but they will also fail to consider variables that might be important. This is true of any study, of course, but researchers have only started quantitatively studying the way different genders use language in the last 40-ish years, Mm -hmm. um, which is recent enough that there hasn't been much time to work out problems or collect more data to validate previous work. So with all that giant caveat and, um, you know, me reminding everyone to please think critically about everything you hear. <laughs> Let's move into the first study. So uh, the first study is about 
whether women hedge their speech more using phrases like uh, sort of and I think um, and there have been surprisingly few formal studies, uh, but women actually hedge their sentences only a little more than men and only in certain situations. Mm -hmm. So one researcher claimed that the use of I think X or perhaps Y by women reflects a lack of assertion, which I mean, sure, that makes sense at face value. You know, we we want to I feel like we as a society believe that women are more timid and don't want to sound too strongly opinionated and it's unladylike uh. to <laughs> be strong. Um, but this conclusion by this researcher is based on the assumption that using hedging phrases is a weakness, mm -hmm. that it's something to avoid. Um, but to me, that seems like a pretty patriarchal view. Yeah. Uh, yeah. By which I mean, you know, men don't use hedging phrases. So people who do use them are not as good, um, which reminds me of a much more common thing that a lot of people have experienced um, where uh, anger is an accepted emotion in the workplace, but not crying. Mm. Um, both are very strong emotions, but it's usually men that get angry. So showing anger tends to be more tolerable than crying. Yeah. Um, oh, God, that's, yeah, that's it's, the it's, truth. <laughs> I, it is. I, just like anecdotally, too, like, I think this is especially true in like, uh, industries that are a little bit more, for lack of a better word, gendered. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, like the example I can think about at the top of my head is my time on the cooking line. Um, most Ooh. of most of the cooks were male, very boys clubby, and yeah. you could get angry as shit. We we used to call used to call the walk in freezer the rage cage because uh, that's where we go to <laughs> scream and put dents in it with a step ladder. Oh uh, my god. Or sometimes just our fists. Depends on who it is. Um, that was all fine. No one ever gave anyone yeah. shit for going to the rage cage. But if you dare shed a tear because you because you were frustrated, oh, it'd be a month before you'd live that shit down. I mean, yeah, and that's that's so ridiculous. I would. Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously biased, but like punching holes in things is obviously dumber than crying. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't, it wasn't holes. I mean, this is a solid steel door. Well, okay, not solid. Making dents or whatever. I don't know. I, yeah. I just. Oh, no, I I, I agree. Uh, uh, especially now that I cry at the drop of a hat. <laughs> um, well, I mean, yeah, yeah I do, too. But different reasons. <laughs> anyway. Okay, um. So uh, interestingly, uh, studies that formally analyze women and men talking in mixed gender or same gender groups point at point out that there are different functions of using hedging phrases um in addition to quantifying the fact that men frequently use hedging phrases almost as much as women so i want to give you a hedging phrase and point out how it can be used to mean different things depending on context and tone because it's important for understanding a significant finding um that i think is really cool and that i want you to understand mm -hmm. so my example phrase is, you know, which can be used in two different ways to express the speaker's confidence and certainty or to express uncertainty. 
So here's an example of, you know, expressing confidence and certainty. The way straight people view gender, you know, as this black and white either or <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, and here's a sentence with, you know, expressing uncertainty. The way straight people think of marriage as a life sentence, you know? So <laughs> in Love these examples one of case, <laughs> thank you. In one case, you know, is a shorthand for showing, you know what you're talking about. You know, the listener knows too. Um, and in the other case, the phrase is used to check that the listener understands and agrees with you. Mm. So there was a study that separated these two functions of the phrase, which is a hedging phrase. Um, even though women overall use, you know, 1% more frequently than men, barely more frequently, mm. they used it to express confidence significantly more than men did. So meaning that even though women were using the hedging phrase just slightly more, if you consider how they were using it, women used, you know, to express confidence far more frequently, while men used, you know, to express uncertainty. Hmm. So not only is that interesting by itself, but it shows that even if women use hedging phrases more, it's not necessarily because they're being timid and unassertive, like mm -hmm. that other person thought. So another important factor to consider when thinking about hedging phrases is that women talk more frequently about sensitive topics and personal subjects, while men often avoid talking about themselves or anything like that. So when you say, oh, I, you know, oh, I think that's true, or perhaps that's true, that's a useful way to navigate difficult topics and give the listener space for their own opinions. Mm -hmm. So... <clears throat> Even though that use of hedges is less assertive, um, it doesn't mean that less assertive is weaker or worse. Again, like before, we think of assertive as good. And, oh, there are so many books about being more assertive to mm. get what you want or whatever. Um, but it's, it's such a male-centric view. Men are more assertive. Men do better in the workplace. Therefore, mm. everyone should be assertive. And that's... <laughs> I don't agree. No, me neither. No. So, okay, next study. Um, this study focuses on the topic of tag questions, um, which are things like, isn't it? Or right? Mm -hmm. For example, um, take the sentence, the, <laughs> the healthcare system in the United States is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Versus uh, the healthcare system in the United States is garbage, right? Yes, uh, emphatically. Yes. <laughs> So, like the last study, these researchers were smart and separated the tag questions by their function. They can either express uncertainty or they can express support. Mm. For example, the tag question, isn't it, is used to express uncertainty in this sentence from one friend to another. She's coming around noon, isn't she? But uh, the phrase can also be used in a supportive way, like when a teacher says to a young student, the hen's brown, isn't she? Mm -hmm. Again, in this study, women do use these hedging tag questions more than men. However, 
Most of the time, men use tag questions to express uncertainty, while women mostly use tag questions in the supportive way. Um, and again, you might be thinking both of those uses make the sentence less assertive, and I agree. However, I do want to point out that the use of tag questions is found to be used more by the person who is responsible for the interaction proceeding smoothly. Hmm. And it's often women who bear this burden, <laughs> um, which is one reason or one one possible explanation for why women use tag questions more. Hmm. Um, tag questions are also used more frequently by other people who are facilitating conversations like a radio interviewer or a teacher or a host. Mm -hmm. Or a so, podcaster. Yeah, right? Well, that would be, yeah, a host or a, an mm -hmm. interviewer. Yeah. So the examples I've given of hedging phrases like I think and tag questions like right were called, were called women's language when researchers first started studying the link between gender and language use. Um, some other examples of women's language are using emphasis words like so and very, uh, hypercorrect grammar and pronunciation, and super polite phrases like would you please or I'd really appreciate it if. Um, mm. And again, all of these seem like just nice things to do. I don't. <laughs> I mean, it's not it's not clear, but it seems implied from the literature that, you know, women's language is weak or whatever. <sighs> and I'm just like, these are just nice yeah. ways to have a conversation. Um, so, um, after the whole, I don't know, I think it was like 15 years after they started calling it women's language, there was a study that used transcripts from criminal trials mm -hmm. and researchers studied how frequently witnesses used, uh, these women's language phrases. So it turns out in these transcripts, uh, both women and men used women's language. Gender was not as important as the witness's previous courtroom experience and social status. So I'm, I'm doing that Star Trek cartoon thing where he's covering his mouth, all fake surprised. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Gasp. Uh -huh. Yeah. No, it's, it's not shocking. So <laughs> women who were expert witnesses, for example, used very little women's language. Um, so I'm going to give an example, uh, two different examples from these transcripts. So. Mm -hmm. The lawyer asks, had the heart been stopped, there would have been no blood to have come from that region. And the witness responds, it may leak down depending on the position of the body after death. But the presence of blood in the alveoli, alveoli indicates that some active respiratory action had to take place. The other example, um, the lawyer asks, and you saw you observed what? And the witness responds, well, after I heard, I can't really, I can't definitely state whether the brakes or the lights came first, but I rotated my head slightly to the right and I saw reflections of lights and, uh, very, very, very instantaneously after that, I heard a very, very loud explosion. From my standpoint of view, it would have been an implosion because everything was forced outward like this, like a grenade thrown into a room. And, uh, it was it was terrifically loud. 
So uh, you might be able to guess. The first example is from an expert witness who happened to be a woman. The second example is from a man who had no courtroom experience. And um, (laughs) the, the general conclusion from the study was that women's language should instead be called powerless language. Mm-hmm. Um, the previous shitty name equated women with powerlessness because in societies like ours, that's often true. However, when men are put in a context where they feel powerless, they use language we usually think of as feminine. Mm. Um, I just want to say that again in a little bit different way, because I think this is an important conclusion. Mm-hmm. The ways of speaking we associate with women have nothing to do with gender. Instead, those phrases and words are used by anyone in a situation where they feel powerless, which just happens to be women almost all of the time. Mm. Um, (laughs) And I even, you know, I even have a problem with the phrase powerless language uh, because by calling it powerless we're implying these phrases and words are negative. It's got this negative connotation, but they really just seem like ways of making a conversation go smoothly or a sort of verbal surrender to someone who you know is going to be a jackass if you don't acknowledge their superiority. Mm. Like <laughs> when you go to court and you, you know, want to, you don't want to piss off the lawyer or the judge or whatever. And so you're, you're mm. just making hedging statements and and checking in and basically making sure the conversation goes smoothly so to follow up on that there are other studies that have shown when gender and status are in conflict gender does wind up dominating so Hmm. meaning if a high status woman is interacting with a lower status man, it's still the man who dominates. Um, So I have several studies, several different kinds of examples. Um, It's been shown in doctor-patient interactions, workplace conversations, and TV interviews, to name a few. So in the doctor-patient interactions, doctors regularly interrupt their patients. Mm. The only exception is when the doctor is a woman and the patient is a white man. In that case, the patient interrupts the doctor. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. So uh, in workplace interactions, uh, men dominate the conversation, whether they are talking with a subordinate woman or a woman with authority, like a a boss. And like the doctor example, this is usually due to men interrupting more than women. And... (laughs) An extra little note uh, from this study is that when men interrupt in these workplace conversations, 85% of the time they get to keep talking. So it's a very successful way for them to take over the conversation. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's, it's lovely hearing all of these things quantified that um, many of us have experienced. Mm. So the last example um, was from a study analyzing television interviews where the person being interviewed was a high-ranking government official, um, a male high-ranking government official. Mm. The male interviewer interrupted four times more frequently than the government official interrupted him. The female interviewer 
did not interrupt at all, but was interrupted five <laughs> times. So I, I just, yeah, there's, there's tons and tons of examples. Um, and they lead into my next point, which is addressing this widespread belief that women talk more than men. <laughs> Spoiler alert, they don't. As most women already know, men talk way more. And again, studies have been done in many settings, staff meetings, seminars, television panels, mock jury deliberations, experimental pairs. Men talk more in all of these situations. However, there is an exception to this rule that mm. I found really interesting and also pretty upsetting. Uh. Um, men talk more in public spheres, but in private conversations, women talk more. Mm. So um, the, there, there are a few studies on this, but the one that I'm going to talk about um, was... Married couples in their home recorded their conversations for a week or more. Um, and then the researchers analyzed the conversations and found that women are talking more because men are non-cooperative, meaning they aren't committed to having the conversation at all. Mm. So the recording showed that women were often trying to keep the conversation going or get their husband to respond by introducing new topics. Um, the, the really upsetting part to me was that the researchers found that typically when men spoke, it was to interrupt their wife about something completely different. So one example transcript was a woman describing a conversation with someone about an appointment and right in the middle of, of the sentence, not even at the end of the sentence, right in the middle of the sentence, her husband interrupts her. <laughs> And tells her to open the back door so he can give something to the dogs. Um, <laughs> so in this study, the the researchers, you know, analyzed all these recordings and then um, called in the couples, not together. So they talked to the husband and then they talked to the wife um, and the researchers would play back some of the clips to ask for their thoughts. So. When the above example I gave was played back for the husband, um, he just said that he didn't feel like talking at the time. And anyway, he'd, quote, heard it all before. Not all men, but certainly this one. I mean, so they, they point out in the study that, like, yeah, this is, um, you know, this was a very frequent response that, like, um, men were were involved in these these non-cooperative interactions where they gave no response or a delayed response um and as anecdotally again as you would anecdotally expect across all categories husbands violated the rules of good conversation far more than the women did um sometimes twice as frequently jesus yeah so uh thank god i'm not straight um <laughs> So I have one other really interesting example um, of the way men use non-response <laughs> to control a conversation. In a study of an internet discussion board, so studying the responses um, and classifying everything, 
Researchers found that men received an average of more than one response per post, and women received less than one response per post on average, and many threads started by women were not responded to at all. Hmm. So, I mean, again, I want to go back to the beginning where I say, okay, here's some facts, and there's lots of ways to interpret this, right? Mm -hmm. But one of the ways the researchers interpreted it um, was, you know, the men weren't engaging with the women and their silence was just sort of a way of like shutting them down. Like if you don't respond to a woman's post, then she doesn't get to give more opinions. Whereas the men were interacting with each other and mm. responding and yeah. So silence can also be helpful. Yeah. Um, but still shitty for women. Mm. <laughs> so, um, one of my favorite facts that I came across before I, I move on from all these studies um, was a side note to one of the studies where people were being recorded talking in both mixed groups and same sex groups. Um, the, the researcher points out that as the study went on, um, the men became less and less interested in attending the all male sessions, but looked forward to meetings of the mixed sex groups. And unsurprisingly, I mean, to me, at least <laughs> the women preferred the all female sessions. Mm. Um, so it's weird. It's like um, the way that women talk actually is a good thing. And it they're better to talk with. And maybe we should be writing more books on how men should use hedging phrases and the way mm. to use hedging phrases and cry at work. I think I could agree with that. <laughs> yeah. See, I okay, used one just so... now. <laughs> oh, I, oh my God. Yeah, no, I totally, as soon as I started reading about these, I was like, oh my God, I do this all the time. Oh, I, I yeah. say, you know, I'm still I was noticing it as I was writing this and I was like, should I take this out? No, that's like that's how I talk. Yeah. I I will say something is pretty true or like I feel or I think. Um, but I think that's fine. Um, yeah. I'm not going to I don't. Yeah, I think it's good. Yeah. OK, so <clears throat> one of the last chapters in the book, Women, Men, and Language, discusses the social implications of all this research on different language use by different genders. It is fascinating, horrifying stuff that <laughs> confirms a lot of what you might su suspect. Um, boys are allowed to break rules in classrooms more often, yeah. like being allowed to talk out of turn. Um, college seminars have a higher percentage of men participating across all subjects, humanities, mm. social sciences, mm -hmm. of course, STEM. Um, the most interesting conclusion for me was from a summary table of commonly cited features of masculine versus feminine interaction. Masculine features are things like direct, confrontational, competitive and aggressive interruptions. Mm. Feminine features includes things like indirect, conciliatory, facilitative, collaborative, supportive. The researchers compiling these features argue that the features of a masculine interactional style are commonly cited as characteristics of a successful manager. 
And I I do. I think they're right. I think masculine interactions yeah. are viewed as good characteristics for a manager. But again, I think it's due to our current organization where many managers are men and men express themselves in this particular way. So that must be the right way to be a manager. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when I look at this table with these words describing these interaction styles, I I think anyone, not just me, but I would obviously want a manager that is described by words in the feminine column, collaborative, supportive, facilitative. They yeah. all seem so much better than confrontational and competitive. Mm. Um, I know, I know it's been said before, um, but this continues to be an issue. And I want to say I'm very sick of these books telling women that they need to be more aggressive, less emotional. <sighs> basically act more like men to get ahead in their careers. And I feel like instead, workplaces would be a lot better off if men work toward using more feminine features, accepting feelings other than anger, interrupting less, engaging collaboratively in conversation. Yeah, that's... I... Having having played at the role um, for a significant amount of time, just just trust Mm -hmm. me, trust me, men, it's so much better. Just let it happen. Just let the feelings happen. It's okay. It's, it's okay to have emotions. Are good. I'm and calling my old self out as much as anyone else. They, yeah. Expressing feelings is good. I mean, there's this is for various reasons. This can be a problem across all genders, of course. But mm. I, I, yeah. Express your feelings. Do not bottle them. Uh, okay. So there is, I, I really also wanted to have, because this is just like, cisgender people right um Mm. it's just cis women and cis men and i really wanted more about um other genders and trans people and gay people but there isn't much and that (gasps) does yeah i know doing it again again yeah again oh wow there is still so much we don't know about how like typical binary genders of straight people communicate so i'm not surprised but it still sucks um but i did find one article um, by Lal Zimmon, who discusses not only gay sounding speech, um, but also addresses the speech of trans men. Hmm. Um, and so I was I was very excited. It's a, a very long. I don't know. I guess I'd, I'd call it an article. It has some original research in it. It has a lot hmm. of summarizing of things. Um, unfortunately, it's behind a paywall that Ooh. even my university doesn't give me access to. But. I managed to get a copy uh, hey. for myself <laughs> and I'm I'll I'll summarize some points and also it's cited in the show notes if you want to go try to find it. <laughs> so the article focuses on the voices and language of gay men, which it looks like is more studied than the language used by gay women. I mean, so yeah. many lack of surprises here. <laughs> um, and I understand the general reasoning i know more people are think they can deduce a man's gayness by his voice um but i would be interested to see a study on the language and voices of gay women Mm. dang it or just you know when we're talking about gayness you know gay women being represented sometimes not just Mm. gay men anyway um (laughs) the author points out that The studies on gay-sounding male voices have not come up with a consensus, so there is likely no single 
gay sounding style, despite what most people think. Mm. Um, he, he also points out, and I really love this idea. I'm definitely going to carry this forward in my life and think about it. Um, that any form of speech that isn't within the narrow confines of accepted masculinity gets shoved into this stigmatized category of gay. Um, I'm sure many of you have plenty of anecdotal evidence and support, but like, yeah, I mean, oh my God, the amount of times <laughs> that I've heard some shitty straight cis dude call his friend gay for like talking about a feeling. Like, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, okay, so how do trans men fit into this? Well, many trans men in this study had speaking styles different from the heteronormative expectation of what men should sound like. Mm. While trans men vocal changes allow them to be perceived by the general population as cis, their speaking style is often interpreted as meaning they're gay rather than trans, which I thought was really interesting. And I'm sure... Very conflicting for a lot of trans men. Mm. Um, of course, some trans men are gay and they're like, yeah, this is great. You can totally think of me as gay. But there's also straight trans men. Um, but trans men of either orientation uh, might use this typically or non-typically masculine speaking style. Mm. Um, so apparently the very first study on gay sounding voices was in 1994. Mm hmm. When someone finally decided to scientifically test the idea that gay men talk like women, which ha people had been talking about for like 20 years before that. They were just like saying it with no evidence. They were like, oh, yeah, gay men imitating women. <laughs> so in 1994, someone analyzed the differences in tone variation between gay and straight men. And it turns out um, that the study didn't find a conclusive difference between gay and straight men in their tone variation. But the researchers did note that listeners could often guess whether someone identified as gay or straight based on their speech. Um, but it also found more interestingly than that is that when listeners were asked to rate the femininity of speech as well as whether the speaker was a gay man, it became clear that they have an ideological link between femininity and male homosexuality. So basically, if you specifically point out to someone that they're equating feminine speech with a man being gay... They realize their mistake and are able to rate a man's speech as feminine, but also label that same man as straight. Huh. So if, if they're not thinking about it and they hear a man talking and I don't know, maybe using I think this or maybe that's true, you know, mm -hmm. they'll often label them as gay. But if you point out that like, isn't don't you think that maybe that's just, you know, uh, a feminine it basically if you give both scales like feminine to masculine and straight to homosexual mm. um they'll they'll pull out the two things but if you don't point that out um then men who speak with more with whatever is perceived as more feminine are just labeled as gay mm -hmm. so this is an important fact for the basis of the study on trans men's speech 
because the author hypothesizes that trans men may have been pressured to develop typical feminine speech as children. So then, once they have a deeper voice after transitioning, their feminine speech gets read as gay, even if they are straight trans Mm -hmm. men. So other research since then has shown there are certain speech traits that sometimes correlate with whether someone is perceived as gay or straight, um, specifically for American English in this case. Mm -hmm. Um, Two of these traits are the pitch of the speech and the way vowels are formed. Mm. Um, but, But different studies come to different conclusions about how predictive these traits are. However, All studies do conclude, so far, as of the writing of this, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that a particular high-frequency S sound is correlated with a man being perceived as gay. Um, In colloquial terms, this sound corresponds to the gay lisp you often see in media, shitty media representations Mm -hmm. of gay men. Um, So, okay, back to the study on trans men. Um, the researcher sent a survey out with recordings of three different groups. So one gay cis men, two straight cis men, and three trans men asking people to guess their sexuality and some other stuff like their ethnicity. So it wasn't so obvious. Mm -hmm. So the scientific analysis of this work was on a whole bunch of acoustic variables, um, which actually, Maria, you could probably do in Reaper, I <laughs> bet. Um, it basically just quantitative ways to describe pitch and vocal fry and vowel pronunciation and mm-hmm. all these things that people who know lots about language talk about. Hey. So, <laughs> sorry. It turns out that there are certain vocal traits that are shared between different groups. So, for example, uh, vocal fry is more common in both trans men and gay cis men. Um, Mm. The high frequency S sound is less common in both trans men and straight cis men and more common in gay cis men. Mm. Um, Basically, like many scientific studies unfortunately it winds up being just like a combination of lots of speech variables that make a voice sound gay and it's not always the same variables so like some sometimes you know certain parts of speech combine to make someone sound gay but if you have those same values in someone else but like the other variables are different they won't sound gay um and yeah that's yeah yeah that's so that that part about the vocal fry is really interesting to me, though, because like I, 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 I this is my bias, probably, but I'm kind of I would I would kind of just assume that straight cis men would be more into vocal fry because like that's a very common thing in, in metal is to use vocal fry as a technique. And, Ooh, I, and boy, howdy, is metal just male dominated <laughs> cishet stuff? Um, well, it's getting better. Maybe it's- it's different when you're screaming, like if you're just having a normal conversation, vocal mm-hmm. fry is not cool. I don't know. Also, <sighs> I mean, these groups were only so, I mean, I know it's it's hard to get sample sizes, but each mm-hmm. group was only five people. So it was like, you know, five trans men and five straight cis men. And of course, more is always better. Um, so So this was only five individuals of of each group so it might be that maybe you know because there were only five straight cis men 
mm-hmm. there was no vocal fry. But if you got a larger sample, there would be. I don't know. Yeah. Um. So I do think um, one good conclusion from this study is that uh, gay sounding speech is not imitating women's speech like a bunch of shitty people in like the 60s and 70s like to talk about um Mm. it is in a class all its own and is affected by both biological and social factors so (laughs) okay one one last little cute thing um to end the episode um Mm. there is a particular paragraph from the article on trans men that i just talked about (laughs) that i i love because it is quietly snarky about Mm -hmm. presuming to know someone's sexuality based on their voice um in a brilliant move i applaud wholeheartedly the researcher also asks listeners to rate speech as coming from a gay or straight man okay Mm -hmm. um and then also whether he has blue or brown eyes (laughs) and whether he prefers to spend time in the mountains or by the ocean (laughs) so of course most people said no idea to guessing eye color or preferred environment but we're perfectly willing to judge sexual orientation uh so yeah, that's that's your little take home lesson for this episode. Mm. Don't be a jerk who just freely judges someone's sexuality based on how they talk. Mm. There's a million reasons why people speak with a particular pitch or use certain language. Um, and you know what happens when you assume. Mm. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, that, that was cool. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah, and that is it for this episode. Uh, thank you for listening, of course. Remember, we do have a Discord, so please feel free to drop by if you have any questions or just want to chat with either of us. Uh, or I'm... give episode suggestions. Oh, yes, or give us episode suggestions with those lovely, lovely, wonderful sources. God, I love sources. <laughs> uh, also, feel free to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, do the Patreon thing if you like it. You, you know how this whole thing goes. I'm not going to belabor it much more. Uh, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.